0: This uh, morning, we're going to start just by uh, talking about this tendency uh, that many of us have uh, to hide whenever we do something or uh, make a choice that we're kind of concerned about what other people think. We have this tendency to hide. I think all of us experience that, right? I mean, it, and it's not just something that we experience as adults. It's something that starts when we're very young. Um, I can remember when I was six years old, uh, I remember this very, it's like a vivid memory. I was six years old. And my dad came to me and my brother. My brother's a little bit older than me, and he uh, got the two of us and one of our friends. He said, hey, I'll pay you guys a little bit of money if you'll get into this uh, garden area and start weeding out uh, some of the grass that's in here. And so the way our house was set up is the driveway kind of went right up to the side of the house and then there was this raised garden bed that had some uh, weeds and grass growing in it and my dad wanted to get that stuff out. So he said, do this right here. Here's a little bucket that you can put all the weeds in. Just pull the weed out, put it in the bucket and I'll pay you more like sweet, easy money. So we start working, but my, you know, my six-year-old brain, uh, for some reason, I have no idea why, but for some reason I thought it felt like a more manly thing to pull weeds and like huck them over my shoulder instead of putting them in a bucket. And so I'm sitting there, a six year old kid, I'm like pulling weeds and I'm throwing them like, I'm like something big and tough. And my brother taps me on the shoulder and he says, hey, turn around. I turn around and I look and I realize I've been throwing clods of dirt all over the hood of my dad's brand new Saab 900 Turbo. (laughs) And there's this grass and mud all over the hood of his car and immediately I'm just like, what do I do? So of course, I need to cover this up so my dad doesn't know that this happened. So I run into the house and I start thinking, what could I use to clean this mud off the hood of my dad's car? And so I grab a wad of dry paper towels I don't know why, I'm L6, you know, I didn't know. I went outside and I just start trying to rub this dirt off. And of course, it's like wet dirt. So it's like smearing it around on the hood of my dad's car. And I'm, I'm trying my hardest. The harder I rub, the more it gets smeared. And it's right in the middle of this kind of moment of like, what am I going to do? Then I hear this like knock on the window of the upstairs of my house. And I look up and there's my dad looking out the window with fury in his eyes. <laughs> and he, he points at me and he's like, you get in here right now. And I go inside and... You know, I, I had a serious consequence, my dad. He, but my dad sits me down and says, listen, uh, he says, Aaron, I'm going to give you a spanking. And I'm like, no, dad, no. And he's like, no, listen, I want you to hear me. He said, I'm not spanking you because you threw dirt on my car. He said, I'm spanking you because you didn't just come tell me about it. You tried to hide an area where you disobeyed. I gave you a simple task, put it in the bucket. He goes, and if you'd have come and gotten me, I could have just hosed it off my car, but you and your, your desire to hide this from me, you actually made the problem worse. I've never forgotten that lesson. I mean, six years old, my dad starts saying, Hey, listen, your tendency to want to hide the things that you're ashamed of are always probably going to get you into more trouble than if you just bring it into the light. You know, we've all had these moments, right? These moments where we're tempted to hide. And some of us have these memories of moments where it's something silly like throwing mud on the hood of a car, but we've also got these things that are much bigger. Uh, decisions that we've made, behaviors that we've done. Maybe it's fears that we have or feelings that we have and thoughts or secrets where we're tempted to hide them away out of fear of what it would look like if we brought that out into the open. Today, we're, we're continuing our conversation on what it means for us to be the family of God. We've talked about a lot of things for us to be family, how we relate to one another as brothers and sisters and how we relate to God as our father and how we are all gifted and we all bring things to the table and that we're a family marked by generosity. All these things we've talked about. And today we're gonna talk in particular about what does it mean for us to be a family that is marked by authenticity and vulnerability? What does it mean for us to be a family where we are able to come together with nothing to hide, an ability to be freely and authentically us? I think in order to understand the weight of the conversation and the importance of the conversation, it's helpful for us to start back at the very beginning of the story of humanity. And this is what we find at the beginning of the book of Genesis. And so in Genesis 1, if you've never read this story, Genesis 1 captures the story of how God, in his power, in his goodness, in his wisdom, created everything that we know and see. He spoke it all into existence And at the pinnacle of his creation, the very kind of the climax, the last thing he creates is humanity. It says he created man and woman in his image, he created them. And all this is in chapter one. And then in chapter two of Genesis, we see this picture of God's friendship with Adam, where God is allowing Adam to cooperate and participate in this act of creation. And Adam gets to start naming the things that God has created And in chapter 2, verse 18, we have this interesting phrase where it says, the Lord God said, he's looking at Adam, and he says, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. It's not good for man to be alone. And so God sees Adam there, and he knows that he's not complete, He that he's not good for him to be all by himself, and so he creates Eve. And so he gives Eve to Adam, the, the very first husband and wife, and he gives Adam to Eve, and they come together, and we see this picture of human intimacy and human relationship. And at the end of chapter two, I think we see a picture of all that God intended for humanity. Look at verse 25 of Genesis chapter two, it says that Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now people are like, that sounds kind of like a weird picture of what God intended for humanity, but here's the thing. It wasn't just that Adam and Eve were physically naked. What the Bible, what the the writer here is trying to capture is that there's this physical level of nakedness where there's no shame, but there's also this soul level of nakedness. This deep soul level of being completely seen and known by another person and having absolutely nothing to be ashamed of or afraid of in being known to the very depths of your being. I love this moment right here because it shows us this is what God had in mind for humanity, that God created us to bear his image and he created us for deep intimacy both with him and with one another. That God's plan was that humanity would be intimately aware of who God is and what he's like and that we would be intimately aware of one another, that we would know one another deeply. And you hear this echoed even all the way down to Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus is asked what the greatest command is and what does he say? He says to love God, to love him with all that you are and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so God has set all of this up, this beautiful picture where humanity gets to walk in intimacy with him and with one another. But in Genesis chapter three, we see that it doesn't last very long, right? If you know the story, you know what happens. There's this tree in the middle of the garden where Adam and Eve live. And God says, hey, listen, that tree, that's the only thing you can not eat, only thing. And we see that Adam and Eve choose independence from God instead of intimacy from God, and they eat that fruit. And this very interesting thing happens. Look in chapter three, verse seven. Chapter Genesis 3, verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And here again, the writer is showing us that Adam and Eve choosing independence from God, immediately their intimacy with one another is broken. Isn't that fascinating? That when they choose independence from God, now they immediately begin to hide from one another. And Adam and Eve, they make coverings for themselves and they start to hide. And then something even more interesting happens if you keep reading in chapter three, in verse eight, it says, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? In verse 10, he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. I never noticed this until this week. Adam tells God he was afraid because he was naked, but they have just made clothes for themselves. So Adam and Eve weren't physically naked anymore. So what was it they were hiding? See, Adam and Eve, they had this this awareness that suddenly their souls were laid bare and that something wrong had entered into their hearts. And so they decided they needed to hide from their father, from God so what we see here is this beautiful place of intimacy that God intended gets fractured because of sin and because of disobedience. And now Adam and Eve are forced to hide, not just from one another, but they're also hiding from God. And when you read this book, the rest of this book tells the story about how God has been relentlessly pursuing his people for the purpose of restoring that place of beauty and intimacy that humanity experienced in the garden. And he does this all the way through Jesus, and this, the picture of Jesus dying on a cross is God saying, listen, I will stop at nothing to restore my relationship with you and to restore your relationships with one another. And the New Testament writers, when you start reading some of the letters in the New Testament, people like John and Peter and Paul, they would write to these early Jesus followers, and they were constantly trying to explain this new way of being human together. Because all humanity know, has known up till that point was brokenness and hiding. And so the New Testament writers will say things like, hey, it's time to step into being known. They'll use metaphors like, hey, bring out of the darkness and put it into the light. They'll say things like, hey, let go of the ways of your flesh and step into the ways of the Spirit. And what they're trying to capture in the New Testament is that the world is marked by hiding, but we will be marked by authenticity and vulnerability, that the world is marked by secrets and shame and guilt. But as Jesus followers, we will be known for honesty, for grace, and for healing. And this is the work of the Lord amongst his people. I think what we're going to see this morning, we're going to flip over to to the book of 1 John. And here we're going to see one of Jesus' followers who's trying to give this invitation to step into the fullness of what God is offering us in Jesus. Look in 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, that's page 855, if you're using one of our Bibles. This is the Apostle John, one of Jesus' best friends, and he's writing to a group of believers just a a few decades after Jesus had died and resurrected. This is what he writes in 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 8. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us of our sins. He will purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, then we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord out of 1 John 1 and 2. I think John is writing to this early group of believers. And he knows that before we understand the grace of Jesus, we live in a world that is marked by hiding. And he's saying, listen, we've stepped into a new family now that is not marked by hiding anymore. And he begins to address this invitation to be an authentic and vulnerable community. And the first thing that he does is he begins to address our tendency to hide. He starts by saying, if anyone claims to be without sin, he deceives himself. Now, let's pause for a moment. I want us to understand this word sin. This is a really important thing. We're going to talk about it a lot sin has a really, it's like nobody wants to really talk about sin. If you bring up sin outside of a church building, people get just kind of weirded out. They feel like, are you judging me or what's going on? So what in the world is the Bible talking about when it uses this word sin? And the English word sin is actually, it's an old English word that was used in archery. And so if an archer had his bow and arrow and he let the arrow fly and he was aiming at a target and he missed the mark that he was aiming for, then that was called sin. He had sinned, he'd missed the mark. And so the earliest translators of the Bible, they tried to think of an English word that could capture the heart of what it means when we miss the mark of what God has for us. Remember in the creation story, what we saw was that God created us in his image. We were designed to reflect all the goodness all the mercy, all the patience, all the love, all the grace, all the justice, all of the good things about God were to be reflected in humanity. And yet when we missed the mark, that is when sin entered into the world. And so sin, that word, simply means missing the mark. It is not a list of do's and don'ts or a list of behaviors that we're not allowed to do. That's not what sin is. In fact, it's it's actually more accurate to understand sin as kind of a disease that has crept into humanity. And when it creeps in, it begins to break down all the very places that we were intended to live in deep intimacy with one another. And it causes this this kind of fracture and hiding that we experience. And so John immediately starts writing to these early believers. He says, listen, if you claim that you don't have sin, if you claim that you've never missed the mark, then you're deceiving yourself and you're actually calling God a liar. Now this idea of deceiving ourselves if you've ever spent any time around people in recovery or if you're in the recovery world, then you understand this concept of deceiving yourself. If you go to an Alcoholics Anonymous AA or an NA or an SA or a Celebrate Recovery meeting, immediately the first thing you're faced with is this push to stop living in denial. Denial is this place where I kind of refuse to admit that I have any problems. And what John is saying is, hey, listen, if you claim you've never missed the mark, if you claim you have no problems, you're just deceiving yourself. Some of us, some people are willing to admit that, that we have a problem, and yet our tendency is to go, yeah, but I think I can handle it on my own. And what John would say here is, hey, listen, if you claim that you've not missed the mark, then you're making God out to be a liar. Because what God has said is, hey, you need me to deal with your brokenness. That's the message that God gives us through Jesus on the cross. The God of humanity doesn't crawl into a human body and put himself on a cross because we can handle it ourselves. He says, hey, let me take this for you. Let me take it for you. And so God says, I'm gonna deal with all the brokenness, with all the sin, but what John is saying is if we don't even admit that we have sin, if we don't even admit that we've missed the mark, Then we're just deceiving ourselves. And here's how denial works. That when we live in denial, we're never able to truly deal with the brokenness that all of us really carry around. And it begins to affect us deep down even to the places of our identity. I can remember early on in my counseling career, uh, I was sitting in my office with a young man that had been referred to me. He was 14 years old. He was referred to me for uh, truancy issues and some drug abuse and just a lot of conflict with his mom. And I remember early on, he made this statement to me that was almost like this clue that would be the key to unlocking his recovery and his help. He said, he said to me, he said, Aaron, you know, the thing I've discovered is that a person can only feel as good about themselves as their best kept secret will allow them to. I remember it took me a while. I'm like, tell me what you mean by that. And he, you know, he didn't want to go very much deeper into that. But what I found out later as I walked with this young man in counseling is that there were some things in his life, some very secret things, things that had been done to him and also some things that he had done to others that he never shared with anybody. And so what he began to realize is that no matter how many times his mom tried to tell him that she loved him, there would be this voice that says, yeah, she may say that, but she doesn't know about this thing. And no matter how many times I try to assure him and reassure him that God loved him, he would say, yeah, you're saying that, but you don't know about this thing. Because when the the areas of our brokenness, the areas of our sin, when they get tucked away and hidden, it really just becomes our enemy the devil's playground. Because what he loves to do is accuse us. And so sin that remains hidden, he comes in, he says, hey, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hitch your identity to that behavior that you're ashamed of. And what he tries to get us to do is to be completely ashamed of ourselves, that we carry around shame in our bodies, like there's something wrong with us. And the moment he can get us to feel shame, the mo- that's how he keeps us in the darkness. And what, what John is saying, here, he's gonna give this invitation for something else because John knew that like, if, if, you, if you deny to be without sin, it's like a, it's like a cancer patient who, who says, I know the doctor says it's malignant, but I'm just gonna choose to believe that it's not. And the whole time they live in denial, the cancer continues to eat away at the healthy cells of their body. And this is what sin does to us as long as it stays hidden in the dark, is that it eats away at our identity, our understanding of who we are, our understanding of who God is, and it causes us to push ourselves into isolation, breaking down the very intimacy that God created us for. And John is gonna say, there's another way. <laughs> there's another way. And I just wanna tell you up front that when you read verse nine, It has this phrase, confess sins. I think that that phrase, this idea of confession, just carries this kind of weight on us. that We're like, oh, it has this stigma to it. But I want you to hear the promise that John is holding out. There's no stigma to confessing sins here at all. It's actually this beautiful invitation to something more. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, if we confess our sins then he is faithful and he's just and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That What John is saying is, listen, when you take what's in the dark and you bring it into the light, it is this place where you begin to realize that, man, God's goodness is so much bigger than my brokenness or my badness. You see, confession of sin is not about wallowing in how bad I am, but it is more about fixing my eyes on how good and merciful our God is. That when we bring sin into the light, God's mercy is able to reign. And I love what John says. He says, listen, he's faithful and he's just. He will forgive your sin, meaning he will wipe clean the slate. He'll wipe it away. And he also purifies us from unrighteousness. And here's all that means is that he erases the sin and then he transforms us and purifies us from the effects of that sin. So the things that we've heaped upon ourselves and our own poor choices and the places of our brokenness, God says, hey, I'll I'll forgive that and I'm gonna completely mend your soul and give you a new heart. Wow. That's the promise of God through Jesus. And what John says is it all begins when we are willing to confess and to name and to own the fact that we have brokenness in our life, that we have missed the mark and that we need God to give us the grace and healing to make us whole. Confession is not about our badness, it's about God's goodness. It's about bringing what's in the dark into the light and trusting that God means it when he said he offers us forgiveness and grace and healing. And so we long to be an authentic community where where people can come together and they realize there's nothing for me to hide here. Because we believe that God's goodness, God's grace is so much bigger than anything that I would be tempted to hide from those around me. And so we've become this family where people can come and be fully themselves without hiding anything. But I need to say a word about this because I hear a lot of talk about authenticity. I hear a lot of talk about vulnerability. And it is increasingly becoming a value in our culture, which is a good thing, but there is a subtle lie that can sometimes creep in to our culture's version of authenticity. See, our culture will say, hey, authenticity and vulnerability is the goal, that we want authenticity for authenticity's sake. And what John is going to say is, no, 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 we're not coming around being authentic just so that we can talk about our problems. There's something more. At the beginning of chapter two, he says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. In other words, for John, it's not enough just to confess. He says, listen, there's this new way of life that is available to you. We confess because we believe that is not what God has for us. That the goal is not authenticity for authenticity's sake, but the goal is complete and utter transformation to look more and more and more like perfection, like Jesus our Lord. You know, this is what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, I love this. He says, listen, through one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Wow, I love that. He's made perfect forever. Are, are you in Jesus? Is Jesus your Lord? Have you given your life to Him? Have you received Him as your Lord and your Savior? Because what the writer of Hebrews says is, You've been made perfect but you are continually being made holy, which means there are continually going to be these places of needed transformation and growth. And our goal is to be the family of Jesus where we come in with our imperfections and we say, here it is. Uh, I messed up this week. This is where I've sinned. This is where I fell. This is the place where I missed the mark. And we go, man, the grace of God upon you. let step into the fullness of your identity and who God is calling you to be in this transformation that happens. It's the invitation to confess is the invitation to fix our eyes on God's grace and his goodness. So how do we do this as a church family? How do you cultivate this type of culture and, and environment in a church family? I'm gonna give us kind of just four simple things. Four simple things that I believe that if all of us were deeply committed to practicing these four things, we would begin to see the Lord cracking open some areas of sin in our own church and we'd see some healing and some fruitfulness and this culture of authenticity would be the natural result. The first thing is this, is that it has to start with you has to start with me, that my job in trying to cultivate authenticity in any community, whether it's my house church or my family or my friend group or my big church, and my job is not to go around and look at everyone else's sin and try to root it out of their life, but instead to let the Lord put a mirror in front of me to begin to show me the things that are in my own heart. Uh, This is the prayer, the courageous prayer that we see David praying at the end of Psalm 139. You hear him, he's crying out to God. He says, God, search my heart and know my anxious thoughts. He says, test me, Lord, and see if there is any offensive way in me and then lead me in the way everlasting. This is the prayer of the Jesus community. Lord, we wanna look more like you. Search our hearts. Holy Spirit, reveal the places where I have missed the mark uncover it, show it to my eyes, and then lead me in the way everlasting. You see, creating an authentic community starts with each of us allowing the Spirit to begin to convict us. I want to say a couple things about this. You know, if, if we're going to allow the Spirit to convict us, it means we have to have a willingness to call sin, sin. We have to be willing to say, hey, there's such a thing as missing the mark when it comes to who we are as followers of Jesus. I hear a lot of people that are followers of Jesus and they feel really confused because uh, they will sin and they start feeling convicted by the Spirit and they'll actually have remorse and some guilt over what they did and they'll come and they'll say, hey, this is where I messed up and I'm I'm feeling this remorse, but I know that can't be from the Lord because that's not how the Lord works. And I say, well, why not? Did you know that there is such a thing as godly remorse? If you read in 2 Corinthians chapter seven, Paul says it so clear. He says, listen, there's a big difference in godly remorse and worldly remorse. Godly remorse leads to repentance, which brings life. But worldly remorse leads to death. See, worldly remorse is that thing that the enemy does that tries to keep us in hiding. Worldly remorse causes us to hide the things that we feel like we should be ashamed of. <laughs> godly remorse says, no, you know that wasn't right. Just bring it into the open because this is the place of freedom. This is a place where we get to be who we are and experience the Lord's wholeness. And so if we wanna be a people that are confessors, then it starts with being willing to call sin a sin. The other part of learning to each one of us be confessors is that we have to kind of learn who we can trust. So this whole thing starts with my willingness to let the Holy Spirit put a mirror in front of me and reveal the areas of brokenness. But here's the truth. There are such a thing as people that are not safe to confess to. That I'm not gonna confess to a person just because they have a pulse and they're standing in front of me. That I'm gonna confess to someone who has shown me that they're on this journey with me. That they understand their own brokenness. They understand their own places of need of the Lord's grace. And they have proven to be a place, a person that is vulnerable. You know, I, I use a metaphor like this all the time when I talk with people. How do you know if you can trust someone? You know, if you are out walking or hiking in the woods and you come across this pond that is frozen and you have this desire, man, I want to walk across this pond. You don't start by just assuming that the ice is thick enough to hold you up and you just run out in the middle and start jumping up and down. That's how you get wet and really cold and get hypothermia. Don't do that. So here's, here's what you do if you're hiking and you see a pond. You, you look at it and first you start with a rock and you throw it out to the middle of the pond and see if the ice will hold it up. And then you get a bigger rock and you chuck it out there and you see if the ice cracks or if it holds the rock. And if the ice seems to be holding everything you throw out, well, then you, you start by putting a foot on the ice and you test it near the edge and then you take another step and you very cautiously work your way out to the middle to decide, will this ice support the entirety of my weight standing upon it? You know, this is what we do with one another. That if you're looking for a place where you can become a confessor, one who lives in authenticity, Don't just assume that just because a person is a person that they'll be the ice that's gonna hold you up. If what you see in the fruit of a person's life is that they talk about other people behind their backs, probably don't need to confess to them. If what you see is that people are making fun of other people's sins or other people's problems, probably don't need to confess to them. If what you see is a refusal of a person to look at themselves and take ownership of their own brokenness, probably don't need to confess to them. And so this whole journey of creating authenticity, it starts by us being willing to be confessors and that requires us to call sin, sin, but also to learn who we can trust and who we can. I just wanna tell you if, you, if you find yourself in a friend group or a community where you feel like there's nobody safe, there's nobody you can confess and be honest with. Well, We have, we have men and women every Sunday that stand over here at this respond banner that that is why we've trained and prayed for and raised them up is to create a place right here in our gathering on Sundays Where people can come and be themselves and share their problems, share their hurts, share their sin, and receive prayer and have someone to walk with them. All right, so number one, number one, it starts with you. It starts with me. We must become confessors. Number two is that when someone comes to you and confesses sin, you should first be a listener, not a fixer. You should first be a listener, not a fixer. Now, here's what we have to all recognize as followers of Jesus is that we believe there's only one fixer, right? There's only one fixer, and that is Jesus. And so that means when someone comes to me to confess a sin or to confess a struggle to me, it's not my job to immediately try fixing them. And I've just seen this happen so many times where a person is caught in a sin or a sin gets exposed or they confess and the community around them immediately begins naming all the steps that they need to take in order to make sure that it never happens again. Hey, you got to get into this group. You got to go to see this counselor. You got into this recovery group. Hey, you got to make sure you have an accountability partner. You got to make sure you they immediately jump in and start trying to fix this person. And I just, if we want to cultivate a community of authenticity and openness, and it starts when someone comes to me for me to be a listener first. And now, here's how that works it's really simple. As they're talking, you're not talking, you're listening. And you wanna make sure that you're understanding what it is they're actually saying to you. And so this means you ask questions. Sometimes this means you say back to them what you hear them saying, hey, what I hear you saying is you're really struggling with this particular sin. Or what I hear you saying is you feel like the enemy's trying to accuse you because of this place of sinfulness in your life. Is that right? And you're asking questions. You're helping them clarify. Another way to be a great listener and not a fixer is to never underestimate the power of the words, man, me too. Me too. So if someone confesses something to you, sometimes all we need to know is that we're not alone in our struggle. That when it's appropriate, don't don't pretend. If it's not a sin that you're struggling with, don't be like, yeah, me too. In reality, you're like, I've never experienced that in my life. It's like, no, be honest. If it's a place where you have struggled, then name it. And so we listen, we ask questions, we relate and I would say, anytime somebody confesses something to you or shares as something that's been in the darkness in their life, man, one of the first things out of your mouth needs to always be, man, thank you. Thank you for being courageous and bold enough. Thank you for trusting me. I'm honored. Thank you for stepping into this. So we are listeners, not fixers. We seek to honor, to listen completely. So, the first, it starts with us being willing to become someone who confesses. Two, we be listeners, not fixers. The third one, the third thing is that we always respond first with God's grace and God's promises. We always respond first with God's grace and God's promises. You know, if I am talking to a follower of Jesus who comes to me and begins to confess a sin, one of the first places I always go is Romans chapter 8, verse 1. After I've said, man, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for being courageous. I I wanna just remind you of some of God's promises for you as a follower of Jesus. Romans 8, one says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. I'm seeking to reassure them that, hey, this sin that you've committed, this area where you've missed the mark, this does not disqualify you for all of God's promises. That Jesus's grace is sufficient even for what you've just shared with me. There's no condemnation. No condemnation, or I'll bring them to First John chapter one. And I'll say, "Hey, listen, this is the promise of God that when we confess, He is faithful and He's just and He's forgiving you, and he's freeing you from the effects of this sinfulness." So you see the response? this is why it's so important that we be students of God's Word? We need this. We need it for one another, with one another. And so, as I allow myself to become a confessor and then I practice listening and not fixing, the first thing I want to do is point people to God's grace and God's promises for them. And then the fourth thing is this the fourth thing we need to do is we remind one another of our identity. We remind one another of our identity. Now, a lot of people would say, now, wait a minute. What about the place where you tell them, okay, don't do that again. Don't sin anymore. You know, it's like, isn't that what Jesus did? what Jesus did. Like John 8, right? John 8, this woman's caught in adultery. She comes to Jesus. He says, at the very end of the story, he says, woman, where are your uh, accusers? Does no one condemn you? And she says, no one. He says, well, then neither do I condemn you. But then what does he say? He says, go and leave your life of sin. So what does this mean? Where, where, where do we do that? Where is that our place to do that? And what I, I think we take our cue from some of the New Testament writers here. If you read Paul's letters to almost any church that he's writing to, he always addresses sin. He always is pointing out, hey, here's the places where you need to grow a little bit. But one of the ways that he does this is once he starts identifying sin, he almost always says, hey, remember, that's not who you are. Remember, that's not who you are. This is not what you were called to. You were were called to be children of the light. Don't continue on in the ways of darkness. Or he'll say, hey, listen, you gotta take off the old self and put on the new. He says, says, listen, there are these places where you're missing the mark still. That's not who you are. Let me remind you of the fullness of your identity, that through Jesus, you have been made a child of the King. You are a son or a daughter of God Almighty, and he's made you for so much more than this. You see, our response is not sin management saying, hey, don't do this anymore, really batting down on that self-control thing. No, the, the goal is to remind us that, hey, freedom has already been given to us, that God's bigness, his goodness is much bigger than our brokenness. And so when people confess to us, we respond with his grace and his promises, and then we remind them, hey, remember, this is just not who you are. God has more for you than this. And this is this empowering place where we send one another back out into the world as representatives of Jesus, deeply committed to allowing him to transform us so that we don't continue to walk in the places of brokenness and missing the mark. I've just found that trying to walk a life free of sin happens much more effectively when I realize I walk in that life in a place of deep identity as a child of God, instead of a place where I've been browbeaten and made to feel guilty so I think if we practice these four things, that we are confessors first, we allow the Spirit of God to convict us and to respond to godly remorse with repentance. And we we become listeners and not fixers. We remind one another of the grace of God and the promises of God. And then we remind one another of our identity so that we can walk in confidence as image bearers of God Almighty. This morning, we're gonna start this together just because we do this every Sunday. I think this already happens in so many beautiful ways in our church. And this morning, I'm about to dismiss us and we're gonna go you know, to the tables around the room. We're gonna to go to the bar and there's these little cups and this bread. Every week we come to this. And this is this reminder. This is a place where Jesus said, hey, this is my body has been broken for you. This is my my blood that's been poured out for you. That this new covenant that I'm making with you, you are made right with God. There's no reason to hide anymore. Like this grace right here will wash away anything that you think you need to hide. And he says, will you come? Will you come? And as we come and as we take communion, I wanna encourage us to pray that prayer that David prayed. Come to the cup, come to the bread, and say, Lord, will you search me? Reveal any offensive ways in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And let's not be people that take the bread and the cup and hide from one another, but let's take the bread and the cup and let's be known by one another. Let's pray for one another. Let's confess to one another. And so I'm gonna pray for us. The communion is out all around the room. Jesus is here with us in our midst. If you need prayer, if you have something you need to share that you've never been able to share, there's men and women over here that would love to chat with you. Um, let's let this be a time where we let the Spirit begin to cultivate a culture of authenticity and vulnerability in our midst. Father, we, we love you very much. And um, God, I'm, I'm so grateful that you seek to bring freedom. That the world tells us we should hide and that we should be ashamed. But you tell us, now bring it to me. And Lord, you forgive and you purify and you remind us that we are yours. And so Father, I pray right now as we come to the cup, as we come to the bread, Jesus, would you remind us of the sufficiency of your grace? Holy Spirit, would you search our hearts? Would you continue to transform us so that we can look more and more like Jesus? And Lord, I'm I'm just reminded as I pray that what your servant John says is that you died not just for our forgiveness, but so that the sins of the world could be atoned for. So Jesus, would you fill us with your spirit and as we learn to walk in the freedom of your grace, would you help us to share that with the world around us? May the world know the goodness of your grace, Lord. Come and minister amongst us now, Lord, as we come to commune with one another and with you. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.